You're listening to Naked Truth, a therapy podcast. Please remember to check episode notes for trigger warnings before listening. All right, that's it for me. Now here's Alicia. Hi there, this is Alicia, and I'm here with Sophie today. How are you, Sophie? I'm good. How are you? Good. I figured <laughs> we would do this uh, section or this podcast together today because it's a rainy day, and we have both a lot of different ideas on things. And first, we're going to talk about trauma and mental health. Yay. Yay. <laughs> yes, can you do a little sing-along and things? That would be awesome. So trauma and mental health. We have a lot of very concerning um, news recently, uh, especially about the Texas shooting. Uh, we have the war in Ukraine. We have a lot of violence happening around the world. And a lot of people are talking about mental health crisis in America and maybe even around the world. And so I think that uh, talking about trauma and mental health is very fitting here. I grew up in Poland. And I will just tell you that uh, almost every day, my parents uh, talk to me about different things. You know, hey, how are you doing? What was going on in school? I always felt very connected to them, and they always um, kept tabs on me. Sometimes I felt like they they just, you know, kept tabs a little too much. And we sometimes joked about it, my dad especially. But my parents were in my corner. They knew me. I, uh, they talked to me like I was a person. They never lectured me. They did not tell me, do this now or, you know, you're, you're going to get a beating. They didn't beat me. They didn't scream at me. They talked to me like I was a person. And I, I will always, for that, appreciate them and respect them. And why I'm talking about my upbringing is because I think that when we talk about mental health crisis we forget that it's not just some topic that is not connected to us. We forget that mental health is a process that happens over a person's lifetime. And it starts in our childhood. And it starts with our caregivers, caregivers and parents. And when kids are traumatized, by their parents, traumatized by neighbors, other kids in school, when they're traumatized by watching violent movies or playing violent uh, video games, then bad things are going to happen. And we can't fix it with one hour therapy session per week. And we can't just drop our kids off at a counselor's office and expect that the counselor is going to fix our child. I think that we are all a part of the mental health crisis, not just in America, but the whole world. And we need to start thinking about it. And what are we going to, as individuals, what are we going to do differently with our children and our communities? And how are we going to change our way that we view mental health? And perhaps we're not just going to view it as some separate from you topic separate from you know your kids topic you know you, you could sit there and say to yourself well my kids are fine you know they they're not aggressive they you know they do what I tell them they they're fine but how connected are you to your children how close are you with them what is your relationship with them because we we ultimately we are all responsible for 
the upbringing of our children and raising the next generation. So there's so many things to say here and we are never going to be able to resolve you know, all these problems in one sitting and, and fix the world. But what we can do is we can start thinking about our own personal responsibility for what is happening around us. We don't have control over what other people are going to do or what you know, teachers are going to do or what the politicians are going to do or the movie makers are, are going to do. But we have control over what we are going to do as individuals with our children and with ourselves. And that's something to, to start thinking about. I think if we just start the process of thinking our about our own personal responsibility in this mess that, that we're in, then perhaps a real change can actually happen. And I wanted to go back to, to the trauma, right? Because trauma is a very important concept and we don't think about it. We, we, we simply want to brush it off and say, well, people have bad things that happen to them and then they just sort of need to move on and sometimes when people go through trauma, we just schedule them with a counselor and we think that all is fixed. But again, trauma has a profound impact on a human's life, on our brains. It's so profound that it will show in everyday life for everyone that was traumatized for the rest of their lives. And... It doesn't necessarily have to be just one experience that is traumatic. It can be a series of incidents that happen to an individual over their lifetime. So let's talk about the impact of trauma in people's lives. Sophie, do you have any personal experience with trauma? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I and think everyone does in some way, right? I could not agree more. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I could not agree more. We all have some traumatic experiences that, that impact us for the rest of our lives. Is there any specific experience that sticks out in your mind that maybe you're willing to share, maybe not, but is there any specific thing that, that you feel impacted you and maybe there's still you know, impacts from it to this day? I think one of my earliest, well, I think one of my earliest uh, memories of trauma was probably my first serious relationship when I was around 14. And I know a lot of people might say, oh, you're 14, you know, that's not a serious relationship. But for me, it was, especially because of the impact it had on my mental health. Mm -hmm. And that was around, I guess, when I moved to Florida from the Bahamas, that was its own trauma in itself. <laughs> um, being 14, I'm living with my godmother. You know, my parents can't stay with me the whole time, but my godmother was amazing and was there for me and took care of me. But my dad and mom came back and forth whenever they could. So um, anyway, all that to say, it was a trauma <laughs> in itself. And also I've never switched schools before and all of that. But then at the same time, I was in a long distance relationship uh, with someone I met through a mutual friend at a party. Um, 
yeah, that was a, it was yeah. So what, <laughs> so I so I would like to understand sure. what specifically was traumatic about that relationship because for right now I know that it was you were 14 and you were in a transition, you were moving, you were moving schools, you were uh, away from your typical support system, it sounds like, friends, maybe even selected family members. And so what was traumatic about that relationship? So I guess I can go back to how it started. So I I think I met him when I was 14, but we started dating when I was 15. And that was around the time I was basically allowed to date. But it was it was complex. But my I think my parents felt okay about it because they knew our, the mutual friend we had. And I knew her my whole life. Anyway, so um, I'm going to have to take a lot of pauses talking about this. But... Uh, it started really good and there was all that, you know, love bombing, I guess that would be the, yeah, that would be the term. And it was my first serious boyfriend and I thought he was really cute and I was like, okay, this is awesome. And then it slowly became, you can't wear leggings, you shouldn't wear high socks with your uniform. And like all the girls in school had the high socks and the cool Doc Martin shoes and I wanted to, I loved it. I loved how that looks and I still wear Doc Martens. But it, it started with small things and it's like, I love you so you shouldn't wear this. And me not knowing any better, like if I could go back, I would scream at myself. Um, you know, I was like, okay, whatever. And then it became, don't tell your sisters about the fights we have. And it became, you shouldn't talk to your childhood friend. I had a, uh, I won't say his name because I don't have permission, but like an amazing friend I had since like sixth grade. I I think I permanent, permanently messed up that relationship with him because I was no longer allowed to talk to him. And then it became, I can't talk to my best friend since I was two years old and I had to limit my contact with her. And slowly I was just isolated from even those people who weren't, physically there. So I not only was I literally physically isolated in a in Florida, my closest family member was three hours away. And of course I had my godmother and her daughter who was amazing and her kids. But I didn't have my sisters who I can talk about everything with. I didn't have my best friend in Tampa who's again like three hours away. So and me, I couldn't drive. Yeah. Let me let me uh summarize sure, yeah. for one second yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think it will help us sort of understand what was happening. So first of all, you were moving. So you were already cut off from some of your support system. Uh, Second of all, you felt comfortable with this relationship because the person you were dating sort of knew your family and your mom knew their family. So you felt comfortable with this relationship. So you trust it a little more than maybe you would trust someone else that you just met somewhere else. Yeah. So there was that trust component. Uh, And then because you trusted and you had this uh, euphoric uh, reaction to him, you fell in love, you were more likely to do whatever he asked you to do. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the person you were dating at that time was abusing his his power (laughs) over you quite a bit. He he started with small things. Mm -hmm. And trying to uh, tell you do this more, do do this less. Uh, so so he started also um, using your love to coerce you into doing certain things. And at first, it sounds like it was not bad things. It was just it was just little minor things. 
but they kind of led you to do probably more and more of the things that he wanted you to do, and they probably got more and more progressively serious. Yeah. So then he started separating you from your friends, other family members, asked you not to talk to your friends, asked you not to talk to your sister, uh, and maybe some of it wasn't even done openly. Maybe some of that were even just messages that sort of like nonverbal reactions or like not talking to you if you did something, kind of punishing in different ways, right? And that is what people will use, the manipulation the, to force you to do different things. And it results in trauma, right? So to talk about the trauma that, that resulted from all of that or the trauma that was happening and then, you know, what it left you with after the relationship was over. So... Often before school in the morning, he would have to call me before school to give me the list of rules, you know, no high socks, no, no doing this, no doing that. And at first I was, I was feeling so stressed, like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. And then eventually I started to realize he's not here. He can't tell me what to do. I'm going to wear high socks because I didn't wax my legs. I was, I started waxing because <laughs> I grow hair on my legs so hey, fast. we're so both hairy. It's you okay. You know, I'm a hairy person. <laughs> like I'm going to wear high socks because I can't afford to get mm -hmm. waxed all the time. Um, anyways, so I, I just was like, okay, I'm just going to wear it. And I, you know, he can't tell me what to do. Eventually I started to feel that way. But something I noticed that happened even after the relationship ended, the sound of my phone's ringtone would actually make me physically feel sick. Like I, I almost felt like I was going to go into a panic mm -hmm. um, because every morning there would be a call. I'd be late for school because I would have to go in my closet and whisper because I, I knew something was wrong because I wouldn't let my godmother hear the conversation, mm -hmm. which I was being like, okay, I won't. I'm not wearing that. Okay, okay, just mm -hmm. to appease him. And all I wanted was peace again. Mm -hmm. And if I did anything wrong in his eyes, I wasn't actually doing anything wrong. Um, he would give me like a silent treatment. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah. And do you feel uh, more healed now from that? Or do you still feel like there's long lasting effects of it and maybe still certain things trigger you or? Actually, in a lot of ways, yes, mm -hmm. it's more subtle. It mm -hmm. used to be very blatant and stuff. Mm -hmm. And of course, I've been in therapy since mm -hmm. then. I actually, my dad was like, hey, you should see a therapist mm -hmm. back then. Thank you, dad. Um, mm -hmm. Still in therapy. Um, but now it's more like an internal reaction when my current partner does something really nice for me i feel guilty and like little things where it's just strange and i, I i'm sure it comes more from even childhood stuff mm -hmm. there's just so many other things I, i'm not sure exactly where it comes from but yeah and then also when so my my partner is of course not controlling <laughs> my current one um so there are even moments where I find myself asking permission to do things. Mm -hmm. And he's like, why? Why are you asking permission? Like, oh my gosh, go have fun. And I still feel shock mm -hmm. and excitement knowing that I have that much freedom, which is just normal and a given. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was like I was in two controlling relationships mm -hmm. back to back almost where that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, so it's better. Yes. But it, how long do you think it took for you to maybe be 50% better? Uh, so like a year, two years, three years? Three years. Three years maybe. after the relationship mm -hmm. ended. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how long was the relationship? A year, two years? Like a year and a half. year and a half. It's just crazy how mm -hmm. a year and a half of something can, like the fixing mm -hmm. 
the fixing takes a lot longer than the actual doing. Correct. Mm -hmm. Which sucks. Mm -hmm. And I try not to have regrets because I do think it pushed me to study psychology Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So. I think (laughs) I couldn't summarize that better. I, I think, I think Sophie, that you're absolutely correct. You know, it, Trauma for trauma to happen, it could be 10 seconds, it could be two minutes, but for that trauma to be healed, it will take a long time. And even to this day, you still feel impacts of that trauma. Mm -hmm. And the trauma that you experienced doesn't sound like it was a physical force, or it wasn't, uh, or maybe sometimes. So, there was, there were a few physical incidents, Mm -hmm. um, not too extreme. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think any physical incident is just messed up but yes but they weren't you know I was never like punched in the face or something like that but um even through those physical incidents I think the emotional Mm -hmm. and the verbal and the mental incidents those are the ones that scarred the deepest Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. me the emotional trauma Mm mm-hmm you didn't have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not to not to negate anyone's experience. If of you, course. Because physical trauma is extremely traumatic. Of course. But for me personally, I think more of the, the mental stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really had to work through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a great job. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and I'm happy that you signed up for therapy and that your dad was a part of that process. Me too. It's good to have support from other people. Right. Um, so... So talking about trauma and mental health and all the different messes that are happening out there and uh, the, the, the crisis, really, of mental health, you know, and how it's all connected. Trauma happens, like you said at the beginning, to all of us. That's just a part of life, you know. It, it is going to happen. Bad things are going to happen to us, sometimes more severe, sometimes less severe. But all of us uh, go through it. Um, the question is, how much of the trauma will will tip that person to to go and do something really bad, right? Did you feel any anger when you were processing your trauma or, you know, thinking about it or anger, yeah. any emotions? I guess I, I should ask you, like, any really emotions. Did you Did you have? I feel like... Anger is a relatively new emotion for Mm -hmm. me. But to go back and, uh, well, that's a whole, that's a loaded (laughs) comment. But I feel like I suppressed a lot of anger as a kid. So my immediate reaction was actually fear. Mm -hmm. um, Because I feared that he would show up. Um, He was telling my friends that he was going to do all these huge things, leave roses at my door and all this stuff. And for me, that was scary. I would... I'd have to close all the windows in the house. I was I was afraid. Um, uh, mainly fear. And then after I felt safe physically, um, after, okay, I'm going to say mm-hmm. this for the purpose of editing. So, no, it's fine. It yeah. just, just don't even edit because it's normal. It's Yeah. It's yeah. hard to recall because I'm sure a part of my brain has suppressed it. Suppressed it, it because yeah. we don't want to feel anger, right? A lot yeah. of us, we're, we're socialized not to feel anger. Yeah, I felt like a huge part of my my childhood, well, yeah, childhood, because I was still a child, Mm -hmm. was taken from me. Mm -hmm. And I felt anger towards my parents for not teaching me about abusive relationships Mm -hmm. or teaching me that they're wrong or what to look for. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt, I just felt angry that I didn't, 
didn't know. I felt mad that I didn't leave earlier. Mm -hmm. I felt upset that I didn't tell my sisters about what was going on because once I did tell my sister after an incident happened Mm -hmm. when we were all together, Mm -hmm. that's when it clicked. It was like a a light switch went off Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Yeah. And it's, you know, and so it sounds like there's there's a little bit of anger at yourself for not being able to see some of it, a little bit of anger at family for not being able to protect you from it or teach you about it so that you could protect yourself. And then, I mean, have you been able to forgive yourself for for, for some of those things? I think especially now as an adult, I can because I look back at my old self and I... I see just a very, like, fragile person, and I was scared of everything. Everything was scary. Waking up in the morning was scary. Going to school was scary. Mm -hmm. Talking to someone was scary. Asking Mm -hmm. for something was scary. Everything was scary, so I I know that back then I was just... I was just afraid and really fragile and sensitive and dealing with a lot of stuff, so I... Now I can forgive myself because I know it wasn't my fault, and I did learn and I did move on and end up feeling the happiest I've ever felt, actually, once I was in therapy and processing it. And I had a great senior year. And Yay. It and all you're kinda... feeling better. Yeah. <laughs> and now you know so much more. Yes. You grew from that. How did you grow from this? Therapy. <laughs> uh-huh. But, but I mean, yeah. what ways do you feel like it maybe positively impacted you or, right. or changed you? I know it's hard to talk about, so it's a hard question, I know. No, no, I actually know. Um, I'll give an example. So after it all ended, I was with my sister, and she was in Florida with me, and we were talking through it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I can order any clothes I want. I can wear anything I want, and that's, you know, that sounds so insane, but um, for me it was like I'm free. And that just that knowledge of being free that I probably wouldn't have had if I didn't realize how constricted I was, um, that was awesome and exciting. And I realized that my life is up to me and I felt like I had my power back. So I realized, oh, it's up to me. I can say no. I can leave. I can stay. I can date who I want. I can do what I want. And no one can tell me what who I am and what to do. And also I was turning 18. I turned 18 in college, actually, so that was a huge thing too of just realizing how free I was mm-hmm. yeah that was a good positive it's emotion. amazing mm-hmm. so you know I think a part of healing from trauma is is also accepting that it happened first and then and then simply processing it you know whether that's in therapy office or with with someone that you trust and then probably just uh going through these emotions sounds like you know some anger some sadness but accepting they're part of this process and not trying not to be too angry at yourself right beat yourself up for it forgiving yourself at some point and then realizing that while you didn't invite the trauma into your life and you certainly did not want to go through the trauma because we don't want to go through pain but realizing that in some ways that experience also enriched your soul. And in in what positive ways did it enrich your soul, right? Mm -hmm. Because from now on, you will forever be able to recognize the red flags in relationships with people and realize that some of these relationships are just terrible and you just (laughs) need to leave, right? Right. (laughs) And instead of staying and maybe trying to, because a lot of people will actually stay in these relationships trying to change the other person 
or hoping that the other person is going to change. And that rarely ever happens, you know? I did that for a while. Mm -hmm. And actually looking up what was going on, I actually stumbled across Mm -hmm. the domestic violence website Mm -hmm. where I read about how emotional abuse appears and mm-hmm. I actually sent it to him and that was one of our first well no Arguments. it wasn't one of our mm-hmm. it was a huge argument oh and he actually broke up with me because I sent him that mm-hmm. and it was literally listing all the things he was doing <laughs> and I think at that point that's where I started to emotionally distance myself because I think what's important is to remember is that like leaving a, an abusive relationship isn't I mean for some people it would probably be way harder than what I went through but I think it takes a lot of time and planning Definitely emotional work because I couldn't have left him in that moment because I was so attached. I would have gone back. Mm -hmm. So it was, there was a long period of detaching, Mm -hmm. realizing, coming to terms with, and then kind of making a plan. And then, Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. even though it was long distance. Well, and it's, it's amazing that you can also sounds like recognize the steps and, and what it took, you know, you, you sounds like you're recognizing, okay, it took me detaching and took, took me a long time to detach and then you're correct i mean no matter whether the relationship is wonderful or whether it's partially abusive right because all relationships uh well not all relationships but relationships have good and bad in them so for some of us we just have to realize is there more good in it or more bad in it and an abusive relationship eventually turns into a terrible relationship that we have to leave but the process of detaching has to happen, sort of, sort of happen slowly as you're realizing, okay, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. And then it dawns on you like, oh, wow, you know, it's really terrible. I need to get out. <laughs> yeah, I think the confusing part uh-huh. that I also noticed after I was uh, done with that relationship, I was so hyper aware mm-hmm. of abuse and different things. Um, and I noticed close friends and family were if I ever noticed any dynamics, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, but, um, what I noticed the difficult thing was, oh yeah, they did this and they told me I can't do this, but he gave me a necklace and he, and he, um, apologized and he he, apologized, but that was also my issue because there was positive and negative and the highs are so high Mm -hmm. and the lows are so low. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like an addiction in a way. So I think it took me time to realize, oh, like bad people do nice things sometimes. Yes. Like they buy you flowers and they do this. But in the end, like in the big picture, like those buying those flowers, that wasn't actually a good thing. It was all part of the plan to yes. pull me back in. Yes. And, and, and it may, may be a conscious plan or it may be just something that this person does as a part of their manipulation technique. Right. right. We won't know. Because, you know, then eventually, you know, some people will ask themselves, you know, did he love me or did that person love me or was it, you know, but when someone is this abusive, mm-hmm. love doesn't really matter. Can they love? Right. They can't. That was, that was the other thing processing after mm-hmm. was, was there any love? But now I, I don't even care. Right. But of course, when you're in it, that's a really heartbreaking mm-hmm. idea that someone is just using you yes yeah that's really hard so sophie i i wanted to transition a little bit to the role of your family and i know you mentioned there were times when you were even angry at them for not teaching you about manipulative or abusive relationships or maybe telling you that 
some people are just not good people and that they could try to take advantage of you and pretend to love you, right? Or or maybe love you, but in a very controlling way. So so I guess the what I want to get at is, is, is what do you think the role of your family was? Did they prepare you? Did they not prepare you? Did uh, Was there anything that they could have done differently as you look at your childhood? I think they prepared me the best way they could. And for context, um, I grew up in the Bahamas. You know, like the Caribbean isn't known to be very... Uh, like progressive with psychology Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like you know mental health is is shameful Uh, or let me correct that having a mental health affliction is shameful you know it's it's the devil it's Mm -hmm. it's sin it's this it's that you need to pray about it and you know that's that's all they really knew I I just I think at the time they were growing up like it was very normal for a man to tell a woman what to do or that the man does this and the woman does that and kind of these controlling dynamics were super normalized, I think, for their generation. Mm-hmm. So that might have something to do with it. But also just the general knowledge that, especially, like, of course, overt abuse, like hitting and stuff isn't, is bad. You just know it's bad. But the intricate emotional things and the verbal things, those are a lot harder to identify and explain to a child. You're, you're sort of saying that you wish that your family would play a larger role at educating you on these kinds of relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I really learned a lot from my sisters, actually, because they're, they're a lot older than me, like mm-hmm. eight plus years older. So um, talking to them was really, really life-changing. Like once I, rela- once I had a relationship with them and I had my own cell phone, I was texting them every day on WhatsApp and just talking to them about stuff and realizing, oh, my gosh, there's a whole world out there. There's a whole different perspective. And mm-hmm. I realized that there isn't just one way. Yeah. How big is mental health in Bahamas? I think it's growing. And my generation is really shifting mm-hmm. things. And from what I'm hearing, I, I don't I haven't been back a lot and haven't really looked into it. But I think it is growing and it's a lot different than when I was a kid. Yeah. How do you feel about it now? I mean, do you feel like, because you know, when when we uh, started talking, you know, we talked a little bit about how mental health seems like it's such a disconnected idea, you know, from what it actually is. When people say mental health, sometimes they, they think it's like this, you know, you go somewhere and you sit with someone for an hour and then you're done and then, then it's all good. It's It's almost like, what is mental health? I mean, what is mental health to you? Mental health to me is showing up every day and doing the things I know that work for me to keep me, you know, sane <laughs> and mm-hmm. balanced, uh, going to therapy if that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mental health is just a state of well-being, really. I, I, perf- I mean, I, I, again, I couldn't agree more. I think... If we look at mental health as a state of well-being, then when people talk about mental health crisis, they are not going to just think about mental health counseling centers and psychiatrists. They are going to think about it's a humanity crisis. That's what it is. It's a crisis of confusion where people don't understand how to stay well. It almost feels like 
people forgot how to take care of themselves. Yeah. I think it's it's another body part for lack of the, just mm-hmm. to explain it with that those terms. It's another body part to take care of. It's another part of ourselves yes. that we have to take care of that I don't think we realized we had to take care of. That's correct. Yeah, you know, we take care of our heart, mm-hmm. right? We we talk about blood pressure, we talk about medicines for blood pressure, we talk about exercise, we talk about, you know, um diet. We talk about all kinds of things, but we don't talk about how to maintain our mind, how to um, even protect our mind, I would say. I think it was almost scary to think about mental health. I think it was more like, what would, I don't know, what was it referred to when I was a kid? Like seeing a a shrink or something Mm -hmm. like, there were just all these different terms. Terms. And in my head, as a, as a very young kid, I would picture someone laying on a couch talking to someone and someone's writing it down and it's all robotic mm-hmm. and all this. But now that I realize that, oh, you can have a therapist and be excited to go to therapy and your therapist is excited to talk to you and it's it's like catching up with a girlfriend, except mm-hmm. they have all these tools mm-hmm. and education and stuff. So I think just changing the perspective and also knowledge of knowing um, – what to look for in a therapist is super important. Super important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that again, you're hitting on some great <laughs> points. You you are um, you're seeing mental health now more like a part of your day to day routine. Mm-hmm. You're understanding that it's not just a visit with with a counselor uh, once a week, but it's rather than uh, more than that, it's maintaining your wellness throughout that week. And then talking to a counselor is not a foreign concept. It's it's like talking to another human being that is able to relate to you. And maybe you're even excited to talk to them about your day-to-day life yes. mm-hmm. and processing that trauma. So uh, so I think the, the mental health crisis, when you, when you think about it on a global scale, it's just a crisis of disconnection, the disconnected, being disconnected from ourselves. We're not connected. We are connected to our phones. We're connected to our uh, movies, Netflix. Uh, we are staying busy. We are, um, you know, connected with all these different platforms, social media. But how are we connected to ourselves? And then what are our relationships looking like? And mental health is not just some foreign concept. It's day-to-day functioning. And what are we doing to take care of ourselves day to day, to maintain our mind. Okay, so so let's tie it back to uh, to the therapist point of view. So you talked a lot about the traumatic relationship that you went through, and talked about the process of how how it went for you what you felt, some of the emotions that happened. So now let's talk about what can someone do when traumatic event or maybe even a lifetime of traumatic things happens to someone, what can they do with that? So obviously they're going to, someone that goes through traumatic experiences, just like you described, Sophie, will feel lots of different emotions. They might range from anger, sadness, blaming yourself to uh, eventually hopefully accepting what happened and then forgiving yourself. But if it doesn't happen, the person might be going on for years and not forgiving themselves for something that happened. So what would be the best approach here would be thinking about 
signing up then for therapy with someone that's qualified to discuss the trauma and someone that can help process the trauma can help making make sense out of the emotions that 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 the person feels uh what what other things could we do um i think we could also engage in practicing a better relationship with ourselves so uh in the first episode especially we talked about healing our lives and and talking about um affirmations so what we could do is we could engage in a self-affirmation almost process where we support ourselves with positive words with um with well positive words primarily because that's what affirmations are so what are some things that that you could you could continue doing sophie as you're going through this process on on your own level not not going to therapy not doing anything else what could you do yourself to help support yourself through this uh you know the experiences that you went through and continue healing i think everyone's different but something that helped me was educating myself on abuse mm -hmm. and the forms of it that was when i was in the heat of it all and and uh i'm fresh out of the relationship i'm trying to make sense of it that was helpful to know that it wasn't my fault mm -hmm. it's it's i just remembered that because honestly i, I finally got over that idea mm -hmm. that it was my my fault um knowing that it wasn't my fault was huge it was the biggest thing and just educating myself really helped me put into perspective of how that I was the victim in that situation. I wasn't, um, it wasn't because of me that that happened. Um, I was gonna ask you actually, like if someone came to you in this situation, maybe it was the exact same thing, sure. for example, how, what's your approach? To helping them get through the uh, trauma process? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the Naked Truth podcast. <laughs> You, you kind of hear a lot of, um, what I would do first is I would, I would hear you out. I would want to hear your story and I would practice, um, listening. I, I would, I would say that listening, uh, what people don't realize is the power of listening. If, if you can listen to someone and just focus on that person in that moment and, and just shut off everything else and really listen, uh, I think that that is a process of therapy that happens, but also when, when you're just engaging in conversations with people, it will help. So, so if it was you, Sophie, what I would do would be I would listen to what you went through and, and that process would, would lift something within you. And I don't know if you've ever actually experienced that, but I, as a therapist, will feel that there's energy being lifted Yes. I, that's what I call it. Energy is being lifted when, when it happens correctly. I definitely have felt that. Mm -hmm. It's like an unexplainable feeling. Yes. That it's just a lightness. Like yes. Like coming to terms with. Yes. Yeah. I've it, never left. I mean, with a, with a good therapist, I've never left feeling heavier than when I walked in. Correct. Yeah. And I also, I also think it's almost like when you, when you connect to something within yourself or you make a little bit of progress in that trauma process, you will, uh, you will almost feel goosebumps. Yeah. It's almost like you just feel that feeling going through your body, just kind of this uh, exhilaration. I don't know what to call that, but just goosebumps. You just feel like it's real. You will connect to it. And that's why... 
you know, I think our society is is closed off to a lot of truths. We, we you know, there's so much, uh, so much different information thrown at us that we're so confused. But when you feel the truth, when you when you talk the truth, when you connect with something within yourself, I think you're going to feel it and you're going to know that it's true. And when you're when you're talking about trauma and getting through. Uh, the process of digesting it and 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 processing and getting getting rid of it at, at some point, um, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful experience because you will at some point feel like you are getting rid of something toxic that's been sitting in you, and and it's gonna feel good to get rid Oop. of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you say to someone who doesn't have the resources to go to therapy? Are there free resources for people in abusive relationships and how do they access that? So, so that's a loaded question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think there's lots and lots of resources, especially, so if you're dealing with something straightforward, not that domestic violence is straightforward, but if it's something that, you know, is, is provable, I think it's just easier to find the resources for that because if it's, you know, if it's emotional abuse, it's also abuse and it's also violence, it's just in a different sense, but it might be a little harder to search for that specific thing. But if let's just say you have domestic violence and you're going through abuse, there's lots and lots of networks out there that will help out. All you have to do is open your Google search, type in domestic violence counseling centers or domestic violence resources. And of course, you know, in our society, we're very much focused on uh, domestic violence uh, that is committed by men towards women, but it can be the other way around as well. And so we, you know, as, as I mean, everybody just needs to be aware that sometimes it's actually harder for men to find help because there's that social social uh, belief that men are supposed to be strong. They're not supposed to cry. They're um, they're not supposed to talk about their problems exactly. And the the belief is that. You know, if you're a guy, you're never going to get abused, right? So that's that's the belief. So how does a guy that is abused by a woman, or even there there's gay relationships, what about a guy who's abused by his spouse who's also a guy, right? So there's lots of variations there. Uh, so, but to answer your question, I think I I would start with a Google search and I would type in help for domestic violence, abusive relationships, and then all kinds of agencies in your area will really pop up and you can then take the next steps. It is overwhelming. Yeah. You know, it is overwhelming because there's going to be lots and lots of places. And also what is a bad thing about mental health, uh, we are not exactly marketers. We're not exactly uh, sales driven. Right. So what happens is we are not exactly good about calling you back. <laughs> as bad as it sounds, uh, and not every business is going to be the same, but, you know, it, it wouldn't happen in any other business, but for whatever reason, the mental health, when you call agencies, especially when you talk about uh, free uh, counseling or free help, a lot of the community mental health agencies are overwhelmed with phone calls, with requests, with new patients' requests for visit, you know, for services. So what they do is they may or may not call uh, some of these phone calls might just get lost. Uh, so what I would do if I was a patient, knowing what I know about mental health is I would not give up looking for help. And if, you you know, you get if somebody doesn't call you back or it's the one counselor that you think is going to be best for you, uh, I wouldn't give up calling. I would just keep calling until, 
until you get what you need, which is if you need an appointment scheduled, then keep calling until you get it scheduled. There is a quite a bit of a wait list right now for a lot of people in a lot of places. So a patient would also have to be very patient. <laughs> I, I, I believe mm-hmm. there are free resources that yes. I will put in the episode notes. Yes. There's, there's lots of them, especially when Online you... Online, too. Yes. Uh, if you just um, go to any mental health agency in the area, they will have uh, free uh, resources because they will get grants from the government. Uh, most private practices will not be able to provide completely free counseling, but they might be able to discount sessions or services. So I guess the other thing would be, if, of course, if you're not safe, then use maybe... I guess, a library computer if you can or have a a friend make the appointment because some people, I don't know, they might be in a situation where they're... Where it's not safe. Yeah, their partner might be tracking their phone, looking what they're looking up, and it might put them in danger. You're right. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, if someone does not feel safe doing that process from their phone, they would have to come up with an alternate way of signing up for services. Right. Mm -hmm. That's difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mental health, you know, mental health crisis is not just about going and seeing a shrink or laying on the couch or, you know, or fixing it. Fixing mental health crisis is not just about going and laying on the, on the couch in a therapist office or seeing a shrink. It's, it's about a lot more than just that. It's about connecting to yourself. It's about practicing wellness of your mind every day. And, and connecting with yourself and other people in a deeper way and finding yourself again. I think a part of the mental health crisis is the fact that a lot of us are lost. We don't know what the purpose is. We don't know where to go from here. We don't know what the meaning of life is. We don't know why we are here. And it seems like there's no longer answers out there. It used to be you read a book or you go to a lecture or you watch a meaningful movie and you you feel connected to something or you go to church. Now it seems like there's this like mass confusion over where we're going as humanity, you know? So I think fixing mental health crisis is going to take more than just accepting that maybe we all need counseling. It's going to be more than just taking medication for depression. It's going to be more than... I think it needs to be a mental shift there needs to be a mental shift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I do think we're on the way, though. I definitely think so. You think like, so? The difference between the Sophie, way, yeah, you're 23 years old, <laughs> and you know what? I'm I'm happy to hear that that you think we're on 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 I, our way. I really do. Like talking about mental health, mm-hmm. like every person I've ever met, mm-hmm. like I within the first few mm-hmm. conversations, it comes up. Mm-hmm. It's not taboo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm just happy to hear that yeah. because. You know, I think I'm I'm getting to be a little pessimistic. <laughs> no, I definitely think there's a, a change, and I don't feel ashamed to say. Mm-hmm. Like, even with some friends, I can be like, hey, I'm just having a day. I need to stay home, and it's not weird. People aren't mad. People get it. Mm-hmm. 
um, it's not weird to say I'm just really anxious today. Like I'm feeling anxious about this mm -hmm. and yeah, it's normal. So it looks like we have a listener's question. Let's listen to it. Do you think medication is the best treatment for ADHD? That's a great question. And, and I think just like with all great questions, there's different ways to answer that question. Medications are definitely one of the more mainstream ways to address symptoms uh, that ADHD brings to someone's life. And there are so many medications to treat ADHD that uh, we could just talk about that probably for two hours. But the main points are there are stimulants, which are controlled medications, which can potentially um, cause some type of addictive um, characteristic, you know, and, and, and make someone rely on them um, maybe to a greater extent than on the other medications that are non-stimulants. You have two types of medications that you could treat ADHD with. You have stimulants, which are controlled medications such as Adderall, Vivance, Concerta, Ritalin, and other ways to, to call them, which is like generic Adderall. You could, you could come up with, uh, there's a Daytrana patch uh, for ADHD, and there's some other names for amphetamines, which is ADHD drugs, um, that have other branded names, but that's basically your, your stimulants right there. And then you have non-controlled medications that we sometimes use for treatment of ADHD, and those would be uh, Wellbutrin, you could also use Stratera, you could use uh, Effexor, uh, you could use uh, Clonidine, Guanfacine, Tenex. So those medications are non-controlled, they are not stimulants, however, some people will say that they don't work as well for them and they don't see an immediate benefit from taking them. And a lot of people say that Adderall and Vivians and Ritalin, some of those medications, the stimulants, that they work better, faster, and you can feel immediate results. So those are medications, and the question actually is, should someone or would it be best to use medications for treatment of ADHD? And again, I think the answer is not simple. I think it depends on a person. Some people will benefit from taking a medication for ADHD because their lives might be completely out of control uh, due to the uh, severity of symptoms. And other people might have milder forms of ADHD and they may not need to use medications. And I'm sure that you know if you have taken any medications at all in your life and most people at some point of their life will take some type of medications. Unfortunately, all medications have some type of side effects. Uh, some of these side effects are something that might be beneficial to you and other side effects may be something that you will dislike. So making a decision on whether you're going to treat something with a medication or not definitely is a decision that you should not take lightly. For example, Adderall is a wonderful drug that works for a lot of people for ADHD, uh, but it may increase blood pressure, it may increase heart rate, uh, it may also suppress appetite to the point that someone is you know, going to lose a lot of weight. For some people, that's a quality of the medication that they are actually you know, excited about. And for other people who may have a difficulty gaining weight, uh, that is a quality of the medication that they 
just cannot, you know, take or, or cannot tolerate. And some people say that it's actually harder to gain weight than to lose weight. So, uh, so it all depends on a person and there's probably also differences in, uh, personality differences. So even if you have ADHD, one person might really like how the medication is impacting them and they might feel they are benefiting. And then the same medication for someone else, um, may be really frustrating. You know, I, I've heard of people saying that Adderall, uh, also causes some different, um, issues with their teeth, sometimes teeth clenching, uh, sometimes insomnia problems. So it just depends on a person. Uh, and then, you know, for the non-stimulants such as Stratera or Wellbutrin, uh, they may have some other side effects as well. And every person is different. So unfortunately we don't have a magic wand or a, uh, crystal ball although I would love to be a psychic, <laughs> but we, we can't predict how a medication is going to make someone feel. We do use GeneSight quite a bit and other uh, genetic testing to decide or to help us uh, narrow down the, um, the number of medications that we would use for someone. And that is simply a DNA test um, where we take someone's saliva and we test it to see uh, how they metabolize medications. And that, someone, that sometimes will help us determine whether Adderall, Vyvanse, maybe or some other medications would be beneficial for someone. Uh, also, family history helps out with that. Uh, if we know that a parent did not respond very well to a medication, uh, then we may not be using that same medication in children. So it just very varies. I think the, the answer would maybe be... Um, easier if you said is medications or is a medication for treatment of ADHD um, best for me and, and then we would have to analyze uh, your particular situation and, and your history and then decide whether a medication might be a good fit for you and that's why you know in psychiatry we do a lot of assessments uh, you can always if you're curious you can always schedule an appointment uh, go through your history with someone and then discuss the pros and cons of taking a medication and then and then you would decide maybe for yourself whether you would want to take a medication or not. Where can you do the gene testing? You can go to well, I love Google. Dr. Google will give you any answer that you're looking for. But if you if you just Google uh, gene site testing or you could Google um, testing for uh, metabolizing medications, um, different companies, different ads will come up. Your specific insurance that you might have may cover specific companies or not or different codes that, that those companies would bill for. So it always is good to check your eligibility and the coverage with your insurance. If you did not have coverage, most of these companies will allow you to test by making a cash payment or some type of you know credit card payment. And in most in instances, it will cost about three hundred to four hundred dollars. And like mm -hmm, that's a, just a complete cost that most of these companies will uh, discount their services to that point. Um, and there's also patient assistance programs, so you'd have to talk to your physician and decide which route to go. 
Um, most doctor offices will probably be able to do a test for you, but some of them don't use the testing. Some of them believe that the testing is not very helpful, uh, so they just don't utilize it. Our office likes to utilize it because we, we do find, find it beneficial to see what medications might work best for patients, especially when patients have very complicated histories and a lot of uh, medication trials that did not work out for them. Mm-hmm. So if someone gets or if someone has anxiety and then they take ADHD medication and they find it exasperates it, are there certain brands that are better for people with anxiety? That's a good question. And I forgot to mention that before, because, yes, anxiety can also be a sort of a side effect of a medication for ADHD. So um, and I and I actually heard it in different scenarios. For some people, anxiety will go down when they take a medication for ADHD because they report that when they are more organized, more clear-headed, are able to complete tasks, their anxiety goes down. So in those situations, those patients report that their anxiety goes down. In other cases, when people take a stimulant such as Adderall or others, they do report that anxiety slightly up. Mm-hmm. When people say, oh, when you take ADHD medication, if you feel calm, that means you actually have ADHD. Is that true? That's also an, an interesting question. I, I think it would be sort of asking if, if, if you throw a witch into water and she drowns, you know, then then she was not a witch. But if she doesn't drown, then she's a witch, right? Then so, so it's, it's kind, kind of misleading. It's it's a little misleading. Yeah. Sometimes you have ADHD and a medication just is not going to work at all, no matter what you take, and then and then sometimes you don't have ADHD and you're absolutely peaceful and and you take it and for some reason it has the opposite effect of what we would su- suspect should happen. So. You know, I think the best way to know if you have ADHD is to complete full-blown assessment. You could do that with psychologist, social worker, uh, nurse practitioner, physician. Uh, usually a very thorough ADHD assessment will have different components to it and usually doesn't happen within one sitting, right. but rather over a few sessions uh, where, you know, both you and the provider will analyze data from different questionnaires that you might be filling out outside of the session, as well as some of these questionnaires might have to be filled out by a family member or someone that knows you really well. So I think once you complete a thorough assessment and an interview with a trained ADHD provider, you will be able to to sort of say, okay, either you have ADHD or maybe you have some qualities or symptoms of ADHD, but you don't meet the full criteria. Uh, Or you just don't have it, and maybe you're just overwhelmed and paying attention to to a lot of different things. And, you know, and it's a a fairly popular diagnosis right now, so a lot of people feel that they have it. But uh, like I said before, when you start taking a medication for any kind of reason, all medications will have side effects. So I think you should really be sure that you need the medication and that you meet the criteria for it so that it doesn't cause you more um, long-term sort of, um, problems than help, you know? I heard you mentioned the patch. Could you talk about that? I I haven't ever heard of that. Sure. So there's uh, something called the Trana patch. 
isn't there a beach somewhere off of the coast called Daytona? There you go. Maybe it's like <laughs> Daytona Patch. You know, yeah, you know, it's a Daytona Patch, not Daytona Beach, but uh, but it sounds kind of cool. And apparently, uh, some people just don't like to swallow pills, and the patch provides them with a, a more, I would say, uniform way of of the of getting the medication. So we talk about peaks and troughs and the way we metabolize medication. So when you first take a medication, of course, you have a higher level of that medication uh, in your bloodstream. So you will see a peak at first, and then medications will slope down as that medication is being metabolized and going out of your body, right? So when you take medications orally, we might have a lot of peaks and valleys throughout the day, um, just the same like when you eat something and you spike in sugar and then it drops. And so when you, when you use a patch, it's more uniformly um, delivered to your body and more uniform, stable level of it is, is being delivered to your body. So some people say there's not like you take the medication and then you crash. It's like you take the medication and you stay more evenly uh, throughout the day where you don't feel the symptoms to, to be as problematic to you throughout the day. Are there less side effects with it, like appetite? And you stuff? know, I think it also depends on a person. I, 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 I hate to say that, and, uh, you know, some, when, you, when you look at any medication profile, and there's lots of websites to look that up, every medication that you're going to look at will have at least 100 side effects, right? Because every company wants to protect themselves from being sued, so they will warn you, so to speak, hey, you know, yeah, it's a great medication, but the side effects may include. So they just put 100 things on there just so that you can just, you know, be, be warned, sort of, you know. Uh, but I think for most people, it's going to be a very personalized and individualized experience of what is going to actually happen and what they're going to feel when they take a medication. We know that that for for most part there's going to be slightly less side effects because it's the delivery method is different, but anytime you take a patch you may notice a slight redness or you know or your skin might be bothered by it. So you might be replacing one side effect with another side effect, and it just depends what is more tolerable to you. Okay, cool. Well, I hope we answered your question. Please write in or send us another voice message soon. 